it's important that we start, especially as they get into their later teens, we start handing off some of that responsibility over to them. And that's why I'm in favor of helping our children, but not enabling them, not giving them something for free, but helping them to understand the value. In this episode of Getting Money Right, Leo and I are going to discuss some common money questions, things that we've heard from you, the listener, and things that get posted even onto the website. So Leo, let's dig into that first money question. Yeah. So we have a question. The question is, what happens if I go over my budget? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) That never happens, right? Yeah, no, that never (laughs) happens. Uh, Yeah, this is something we come across all the time. And uh, well, I guess the obvious answer, Leo, is that the money has to come from somewhere. Absolutely. It's either going to come from savings, uh, extra work. Uh, Maybe you end up having to borrow for a season. But really, it's not necessarily about where that money is going to come from. It's about dealing with the root cause so that you don't end up back in this situation again. So I'd prefer that we do some forensics and we dig into why did this happen in the first place? (laughs) That's good. Yeah, I mean, there are some areas that are harder to manage in our budget, right? I mean, we typically have three large uh, budget categories that eat up about 60% of our income. And that's our, we talked about this before, it's our housing, our transportation, and our food. And when you look at those three areas, one of them is bound to be out one month or another. And uh, until you really master this thing, uh, it's typical that you're going to run over. But as David said, the important thing is to figure out what am I spending on? Can I pull that back? Is there some way to to cut costs so that I can get to a place where I'm actually in budget? And that's yeah. the key. Yeah. And you, know, you talk about housing. And I think that we get so used to living in the housing that we're in that we find it really difficult to ever think about downsizing or changing locations. And I understand that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if the house is what's killing you, and for uh, a lot of the people that I meet with, I'll actually sit down with them and we'll look and they're usually, I mean, this happens all the time. They're usually five to 10% over in their housing category. And it's not just the housing. It's not, I mean, it's not just the rent or the mortgage, but when you add in the utilities and the internet and the cable bill, all of a sudden they end up really hurting in this area. And if you really don't want to move, then you've got to find that 5 to 10% somewhere else in your budget, which mm-hmm. is a huge amount to yeah. go pull from another category. And you can look at some of the typical things that you can cut back from that one category housing. You can cut your cable bill. Mm-hmm. I know people have a hard time with it, but it is not a basic need. Mm-hmm. It's something you can do without. But even if you cut it out, and let's say you're spending $200 on it, you cut out the $200, that might bring that percentage from 5 to 10% over to maybe 8% over. You're still 8% over. So the yeah. question is really more of can you really cut enough from that housing category to get to a place where it's within that percentage that's healthy for your budget? That's yeah. hard to do yeah, without it's, moving. Without, it's hard. Well, and, yeah. and sometimes you have to just move. I mean, quite frankly, I don't want to I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but maybe it's time to move and find some cheaper housing. And and the cool thing is if you get your housing category back lined up with the appropriate spending guidelines, long term, the rest of your finances are going to be a lot more healthy and that's going to allow you to grow margin and then one day get into a house that you truly love. But I would rather you downsize and live in a smaller place for two, three, four years, mm-hmm. learn contentment, learn gratitude to be in that new place. And then when you go up in housing size, it feels amazing. And it's just even a double blessing on top of that, you know? 
Yeah. The other thing to consider is that when 10% of your income is going to housing on top of what you should be going there in the first place, that 10% is going to come from somewhere else. Yeah. Well, we know that out of the 11 categories that we have, typically you know, 10 to 11 or so, that the other categories, not the ones we mentioned, but the other ones, so things like medical uh, expenses, you know, doctor visits, those kind of things, miscellaneous expenses, uh, those usually take 5 to 7%. So you're talking about two categories having to do without because of the 10% being added to the housing. So really look at it not just from, well, gosh, I'd love my house. I don't want to move from it. Yes, but what are you giving up by doing that? Because you can have the same amount of value without spending that much money. It, yeah. is, it is a hard move, though. I understand. I mean, it's not an easy thing to sell a home that you love and move to some, some other place that's uh, smaller, uh, maybe in a different neighborhood that you don't want to live in. But ultimately, if you don't, like David said, if you don't fix the root cause, which is either you make more money or you spend less money, but if this money's going to that area of housing or the other areas, then it's really hard to budget. And in the end, you're really financially strapped for many, many years, and it's yeah. just not a good place to be. Yeah, the really cool thing is that your overall quality of life could dramatically improve even downsizing in home. Uh, the home can be a great value, but honestly, if you if you live in a smaller place, you rent for a while, um, you can still enjoy a lot of great things in life, and it may cause you to be able to add recreation back into your budget. Mm. You might be able to afford the cable bill again and enjoy uh, watching your favorite shows when you get home and not have to worry about, am I going to be able to pay my medical bills when they come around next month or five months from now? And so you actually can open up a lot of joy in your life by downsizing sizing for a season, getting your margin set up correctly. And I've seen it. I mean, that 10% people come to me and say all the time, well, there, there's no way that I could save 10% into my 401k right now. Mm -hmm. And I look at their, their numbers and I say, oh, you're right. There is no way because you're 10% over in your housing. So you, instead of a 401k, you're just investing in your home, which goes up, you know, 3%, 4% a year. That's a terrible rate of return for retirement. That's really not where you want to have all your money wrapped up. But you've chosen a large house instead of saving for retirement. And it, and it opens up the eyes like, oh, okay, I get it now. And I just agree with them. You're right. You, can, you can't save for retirement because you bought too big of a house or you're renting too large of an apartment. <laughs> but it is fixable. It's fixable. It is fixable. You can always yep. downsize. You can always find uh, a less expensive home and build that margin. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's definitely fixable. It's not a hard, easy thing to do, but certainly something you can do. Yep. Uh, another area is the transportation. Uh, and some of the expenses that are in there are needs, right? It's There's not a lot of fluff in that particular category. It's either car payments or uh, insurance. It's gasoline. It's things that you need. It's not something that you just put in there just in case. It's something that you're going to have to use at some point. Yeah. If you want to have a vehicle on the road, you need to have insurance. Legally in Texas and pretty much in every state in the country, you have to have insurance on your vehicle, at least some liability to protect the other people on the road. Uh, so insurance, you can't just forego that. You're going to need gas for the car. But there are a few options that you have in the vehicle you drive. And that's, you know, is it brand new? Is it a luxury vehicle? Uh, is it something that you're spending more on just for some niceties when really you could essentially drive a smaller, less expensive vehicle? And I've actually helped people downgrade from a $20,000 vehicle to a $10,000 vehicle and cut their payment from $400 a month to $200 a month. And that $200 dramatically changed their month-to-month -month situation because they were literally going into debt by about $150 a month. 
to where now they had $50 of savings because we'd switched it by 200 bucks. And so, um, you know, don't hesitate. I know transportation, it's another thing. I know it's hard to hear that, sell your car and buy a cheaper one, but that might be the solution. Yeah, we're, what we're talking about here is improving your financial situation. So these questions are, are asked by our viewers because they're wanting to make their budget work. Uh, what we're telling you is that math is math. We can't change it. We can't make it work differently for, for ourselves as, or for anyone else. But when the math doesn't work and you're looking at your situation and saying, okay, how can I get into a place where I'm budgeting? I create a little bit of margin. I'm able to save. I can pay down my debt. I can move forward financially uh, to a better place. Uh, sometimes you have to make some of these harder decisions. But you know, one, one option is obviously to cut back and, and downsize your car. Another one is to lower your insurance. Sometimes yep. people pay way too much for insurance. They have the 250 or $500 deductible where, honestly, unless you're just wrecked Ralph, you don't need the deductible to be that low. You can increase your deductible to 500 or 1000 if it's a 250 and that's going to change the price of your, your policy significantly. You can save hundreds of dollars depending on how many cars are in the policy and all of that. Yeah. So there are ways to deal with it, even in the area of transportation and then food. Um, obviously, you know, if you will make a list before you go shopping, if you'll choose not to shop when you're hungry and if you'll limit your purchases down to basically the outside of the grocery store, you know, the meats and the bread and the vegetables that you need, uh, you're going to be OK. You can actually go a lot further on less groceries if you get the right kind of groceries. And so I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but I love, uh, you know, personally, I love those off-brand grocery stores where all they sell are the off-brands because you can cut your grocery bill in half and maybe for one year of your life, you have to do that. So what? What's the big deal if you don't get brand names for a year? It's not going to be the end of the world. Uh, oh, no, you know, I didn't get organic for one year. It's okay. You're going to survive. Uh, the rest of us lived for 20 years before organic was even invented. You know, I mean, like, I, I know organic's been around forever, but, you know, it just got really popular in the last 10 years. Uh, before that, you know, people went with processed food for 20 years. So I'm not saying you should be there forever. Yes, I want you to have some really healthy, enjoyable meals, but you'll survive a year if if you have to, uh, going through the process of getting cheaper food uh, from a discount grocer. Yeah, we're not talking about buying food that's not healthy or good for you. We're just talking about not paying the premium brands. There's a big difference between going to Kroger or Walmart or going to Central Market or Market Street. And yes, I mean, all of us would love to have just premium foods and eat the best of the best, but sometimes your budget just doesn't allow you to do that. So you have to settle for something that's still good still good, healthy food. It's just not going to have that premium brand. Yeah. And, and most of the time, um, the Federal Food and Drug Administration actually requires that any, um, you know, medication has the exact same amount of the appropriate medicine active ingredients in it. And so, you know, your, your non-branded drugs are going to be pretty much the exact same thing. The food is going to be very, very similar. Uh, you know, I can't tell the difference between branded corn and non-branded corn. <laughs> I really either. can't. I you can't. Know? <laughs> so, so we always buy the off-brand uh, when, when we have an opportunity to do that, uh, except, and I've made this comment, except when it comes to Oreos, mm -hmm. um, you know, th there yeah, are some, some things brands. you don't mess with. That's right. That's right. Yep. So that's sacrilege. That's why you create margins. So you can't have Oreos. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So, um, Leo, you know, what are some of the things that prevent us from living on a budget? Like what makes it difficult for a budget to work the way it should? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I think sometimes people just are so excited about getting on a budget and getting things under control 
that when they begin to learn about it and they're like, oh, okay, we're going to be able to do this, and they get excited, and they just make the budget too strict. They're just, they think they can conquer Mount Everest and, you know, and they've never climbed. Well, it's the same thing here. You have to start slowly. You have to give yourself a little bit of break. Don't make it too strict. The other thing is not having all the categories they need. Sometimes I know you and I have done a lot of counseling and we see people who just don't have money for certain categories. They're like, oh, we don't spend money on that. Oh, really? You spend no money on clothing. Oh, okay. Well, you're clothed today. So I know you're spending money on clothing. And, and sometimes people just overestimate or underestimate. And in this case, if they have no money for certain categories that are basic needs, they're going to spend money on those things and that's going to wreck their budget. It's going to make it seem like the budget doesn't work for them. Yeah. And those are the things that, you know, you're going to have to replace your underwear at some point. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's one of those things that when you, when you throw that, it's like, oh, you're right. I am going to need new socks at one point. I am going to need new underwear at one point. Like you might not buy another shirt for a year or two years. But there are some things that you're going to buy in the next year. And so what is it going to be? And just there are categories that end up missing. And if you don't put those into your budget, that's what prevents the budget from working like it should. Yeah, the other thing is that uh, people don't write it down. They have a budget kind of in their mind, but they don't actually write things down and they don't track their expenses. So unless you find a system that allows you to do that and keeps track of your actual budget. A budget, we've said this before, budget's no good if it's just sitting in a drawer on your computer. It's something that has to be activated and used on a daily basis. Otherwise, uh, whatever plan you have, it's like setting a goal and never looking at it. You're not going to accomplish it. Yeah, I remember sitting down across the table from this one man, and uh, he was telling me that he knew exactly what he spent every single month. He knew exactly what he earned and exactly what he spent. And he began to list off the top of his head, my rent is this much, my car payment is this much, I'm going to pay my daughter's car payment. It's, I mean, he just listed it out, boom, 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 boom. And there's maybe 12 different things on the list that he rattled off. And it was really impressive. I mean, he had that much memorized. Mm-hmm. But I said, okay, well, how much did you spend in groceries last week? Well, I don't know. Okay, but how much did you spend in groceries last month? Well, it had to be, you know, $300 because that's all I had allocated for it. I'm like, I know it had to be that, but was it actually that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, how do you know it was? How do you know it was? And so if you're not writing down the goal, put it on paper uh, so that you can even communicate it with other people in your family unit or with your accountability partner. If it's not written down, uh, then you don't have something that's a hard boundary for you. And if you don't track it, then you really won't know what's actually happening. So if it's just stuck in your head, um, it becomes mental math. And aside from this one gentleman who I met who really did have it memorized very well, aside from the fact that he wasn't doing everything, but aside from that one guy, I'd say almost all of us are pretty bad at mental math. We're not good at doing the math in our head, and so it needs to be on paper somewhere. I agree. And I would say the last thing that prevents people from having a working budget is, especially with couples, is lack of communication. Somebody might be bought in while the other person's not, and just not communicating about what you're doing. Even if you have a budget, By not communicating with each other and not agreeing to stick to that budget, it just undermines uh, the agreement and undermines the budget itself. And typically what happens is somebody gets frustrated, hands it off to the other person, then the other person gets frustrated, and then they both give up and just live as the best they can. And unfortunately, that doesn't have to happen that way. If they just learn how to communicate, put a plan in place together, and uh, uh, agree to do it together. Uh, Even if one of them is more gifted than the other, agree to look at it together. I encourage the people that I coach to have a weekly uh, budget meeting. 
It doesn't have to be a dragged out thing. It could be literally just a couple minutes to look at the numbers and say, hey, we're doing good, or hey, look at this number. We need to kind of pull back on this. Uh, just watch the areas that they're, they're working on. But without a systematic way of coming together and communicating, it's easy to just let it go, and, and it just becomes a mess. Yeah, and I just want to encourage you. Uh, let's say that you are the spouse, as you're listening to this, you're the spouse in the relationship who really spends most of the time on the budget, who does the budget for the family, and you've run into some trouble. Um, you know, we're talking about budgets that don't work in these first two questions. And things have been tough. And maybe you have enabled some bad behavior over the past couple months or even years because you were the spouse that managed the budget, but you didn't want to tell uh, your wife or your husband no when they wanted something and you didn't want to be the bad guy. I'm telling you, as, as you're listening to this, take a moment and just calm your mind, calm your heart and resonate in your mind that you are going to make a point to sit down with your spouse face-to-face, uh, kneecap-to-kneecap, literally get face-to-face -face with them and say, hey, I'm sorry that I haven't managed this budget well. I'm sorry that I have not included you in building it and making these decisions. And, and I want for us to live on a plan that will bring more success to our finances, more time for family vacations, uh, more time for time together in the future when maybe we can both stop working one day. Cast a little bit of vision and couple that with an apology on how things have, have not been going right and that's your fault because you've been managing it. And what you want to do now is bring your spouse into that process. And, and I'm only saying this because I can picture three different people in my mind right now that I've talked to in the last month who really feel like they had messed up their finances and they were taking on the guilt and the shame and the pain of that. And yes, they had made some mistakes personally because they were the ones that were managing it. But the big problem wasn't just that they made mistakes. It was that they weren't operating in unity and communicating with their spouse and they weren't showing their spouse what was really happening. And I just want to tell you, if you're in that place, just, just calm your mind right now and make a resolution in your heart. I'm going to go today and talk to my spouse about this, lay it before him, and I'm going to do it with a gentle, humble attitude and also cast a little bit of vision for how things can be wonderful in the future and download, you know, the debt snowball tool from Leo's website and pull that off the website and begin to cast a plan for how quickly you can get out of debt together. I mean, you can plan and go together towards these things and it will really, it'll change your marriage and it'll change your finances. Yep. I love that. All right. Well, changing uh, gears a little bit, Leo, I I've heard this a couple different times. Um, should I buy a car? for my child who just got their driver's license? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> the short answer, no, don't, don't do it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, that's a tough question because I know many parents want to provide for their children transportation. And honestly, there are a couple of good, good reasons why you would want to. One, one is obviously is you're tired of driving them around everywhere. Uh, I remember when, when our daughter started driving, my oldest, uh, Rachel, started driving. We were so happy that we had one of them driving because they were going all over the place. And it was just constantly taking them to school, bringing them back from school, going to events. And it just it got a little bit tiring to do it. But uh, we, we chose not to buy them cars. We actually chose to help them purchase their cars. So there's different ways to do it. We're going to share a couple of different ways that you can do it. But ultimately, uh, if you look at the pros and cons, I think there are more reasons not to purchase, I'll just outright purchase a car for your child than there are benefits. 
So let's just kind of unpack those a little bit and talk about what that looks like. Yeah. Um, this is, this is an age old question and we come across it all the time and there's some real pros and cons to jumping ahead one direction too fast. So let's break down uh, what this would look like in that decision process. All right. So buying a car for your child, uh, may actually entitle them to believe that all of life's big, big purchases um, should be handled by another person, right? I mean, it's it's so easy when, when a child is 15, 16 years old and you buy them a car, whether it's new or newer, um, it's very easy for them to just anticipate or, or interpret that as, hey, when it comes to those kind of things, my mom and dad's going to take care of it. So when college comes around, they're just going to expect you to pay for it. When they start getting thinking about marriage, they're just going to pay you know, mom and dad's going to take care of it. So it's 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 important that we start, especially as they get into their later teens, we start handing off some of that responsibility over to them. And that's why I'm in favor of helping our children, but not enabling them, not giving them something for free, but helping them to understand the value. Because, hey, if I'm going to buy a car for my, my daughter or my, my son or whatever, it, and it cost me thousands of dollars, they need to understand that did not come easy. It didn't just fall out of the sky. I had to work for it. Their mother had to work for it. So our children need to understand the value of hard work. And, and I think one of the ways that, that it's very clear because they desire to have a car is to help them to be part of that purchase. Yeah. Help them to save. Start early. When they're six, seven, eight years old, start talking about them, especially the boys. They're going to want to drive. They're playing with cars. and say, hey, then one day you're going to want to drive. Yeah. Start thinking about your allowance differently and yep. start putting yep. some more of that money aside for your car. Yeah, think about this as a teaching moment for your kids, not just an opportunity to to bless them or to give them a nice vehicle. Think of it as the opportunity to take them to four different car, car dealerships, learn to say no, learn to walk away from something that they think is good in search of something better. Mm-hmm. You know, help them learn walk away power, mm-hmm. help them learn to negotiate by saying, hey, uh, I like this vehicle, but it doesn't hit the price point I need and we're just going to walk away. Teach them that. Use this as a lesson for them. Teach them to walk around the vehicle to not literally, but proverbially kick the tires. You know, teach them to get under the hood and point out where's the engine, where's the battery, uh, where's the timing belt. Some of these basic things that honestly, uh, this is probably the most excited that your child will ever be to learn about a vehicle, um, unless they're just really big into cars. But this might be that moment where you can teach them the most because they actually want to drive. And so they want to learn, how does this thing work that I'm about to be in control of? Mm -hmm. And so this is when they might be the most open to that education. And this is an opportunity. So you don't want to bypass it. Uh, You don't want to just, you know, shut them down and say, no, you're you're not getting a car. You're, You're not old enough. I don't think that you're ready. Uh, Instead of just a flat no, maybe open up this idea of, okay, what is this going to look like? And then how are we going to get there together? uh, And how can I educate my child through this process? Yeah, that's good. I I like the the method of 50-50 match. Yeah. Um, Because with that, it gives them the ability to to really save over a period of time. And when they finally get to that place where they buy the car, it doesn't, yes, as a parent, you help them get 50% of the value, but they really see that as their own purchase. And it's a, it's a big purchase. Buying yeah. a car is a big deal. Yeah. And I know when our daughters bought their cars, uh, it was theirs. I mean, it was they were like, this is my car. Sure, my parents helped, but it's my car. And I think there's a, a, so much value in that, that you know, children, especially as they're growing up, begin to um, understand the things that they own and begin to take care of them. And having that having their own money into it is going to help them care for it more, yep. right? Because it took yep. them a while to get it. 
And that doesn't happen if you just buy the car. I think it's much harder for a child to to, to appreciate and value things if uh, if they didn't have to work for them. Yeah, if money's tight in your household, then maybe you limit the match to the first two thousand dollars, and you say, "Hey, for the first two thousand dollars that you put in, I'll put in two thousand, and from there you've got to put in the rest." But that will incentivize them to get at least a two thousand, and it's only going to cost two thousand out of your personal budget, uh, which will lead them to a four to five thousand dollar vehicle if they add a little bit more in there, and they can get around in that in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, on the flip side of that, let's say you're doing really well, uh, you have a lot of margin, and and you could really afford to match. A a lot more. Well, we do recommend that you put a cap <laughs> on that match. Yes. So what would a good cap be, Leo? How much would be kind of the max that maybe you would match on a first vehicle? I like for the first car to be no more than $7,000. And, yeah. and the reason I say that is because kids at that age, they're, they're new drivers. So they might have a fender bender here and there. And more than likely, it's better to have for them to have liability insurance than full coverage. Yeah. Um, so if you start going over seven, eight thousand dollars, now you're going to have to have full coverage, which costs you a ton, especially if you have, if you have a son. That's going to cost a lot, and they're on your insurance, so it affects everything. And it just it just makes more sense uh, to do it that way. The seven thousand dollar max, which is thirty five hundred from you, thirty five hundred from them, is a good number because it still gives them a reliable car that may take them through the rest of high school, even into college. Um, a seven thousand dollar car, if it's pick right and if it's you know inspected and all that, uh, it can last a few years. Oh yeah, it certainly can absolutely. last all the way through the end of college, which is great because by then they'll be getting their own job and purchasing their own car, and and you just equip them with transportation for six seven years. Yeah, and that's not to say that you can never go above seven thousand, but it's a great place to start because uh, you've got to realize that the insurance for young teenage drivers is it's double, sometimes triple what a normal driver would be. And so if you can eliminate the collision insurance and just have liability, it does, that saves you a ton yes, of does. money. Uh, on top of that, just like Leo said, these, these are the first vehicles. So you know that they have a much higher probability of getting a few dings and a few bumps. And so uh, if your child decides to put even more towards the vehicle, sure. Let them get a nicer vehicle, but uh, be aware, you know, this is, this is a growing opportunity. It's a time to build some fortitude and some character. I'm not saying that you should force your child into a terrible vehicle. uh, But what I am saying is that you should be aware that this is, this is a learning opportunity that, that they can be content and they can survive in a decent vehicle. They don't have to have top of the line. They don't have to have exactly what their friends have. You're, you're teaching them contentment in this moment. And you want to do it in a loving, grace-filled way. You know, if they personally bring $8,000 of their own cash to the table, well, maybe let them get an $11,000 vehicle. You know, if they've really saved and this is a part of their identity and who they want to be and they love the idea of having a nice car and they've saved for many years, you know, don't punish them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, just be wise. Use wisdom in this process. And it would be very difficult for me to purchase uh, a super nice automobile for a teenager, just knowing that um, that it's going to get dinged up in a short period of time. And honestly, they just don't have the the maturity to realize uh, the cost versus the. You know what I mean? It's just so much harder for kids at that age. They're just not fully developed, so yeah. they think, "Oh, it's a car." You know, they get in it, they drive it. And honestly, the thing that I've seen uh, probably that bothers me the most is that a lot of a lot of cars today are are just kids can't work on it. And, and you have to really be a gearhead. You have to be kind of inclined to that kind of, of uh, maintenance and have a desire to, to tinker with things to know how to fix them. So nowadays, 
it's hard for these kids to work on these cars. They don't know anything about them. So they just get in them and drive. And sometimes some of the damage that they do is because they just simply don't have any knowledge about how to maintain a car. And again, the, the more expensive the car is, the, the bigger that, that pain point is when that car uh, has issues. But uh, again, it's, it's, to me, I think the best, the best part about uh, matching them but not going too high is that it gives them the ability to test out that first car and not, not take on too much, not allow uh, the expense to be too great. And it's not for you. It's not for them. And it just keeps the cost low. And you need that. You still have a lot of expenses ahead of you with these children. The last thing you want to do is dump a ton of money in one expense because uh, you got so many more coming your way. Yep. So let's say that you get to that magical driver's license age, whatever it is in your state, and you personally haven't saved anything for the kids and your kids haven't saved anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's time where you feel like you need a vehicle. Like, oh, we, we need to get them a vehicle because I, I don't want to drive them to uh, soccer practice anymore or football or band, especially band. I think it starts at like 6 a.m. these days. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yes, I can't imagine. <laughs> um, I but, do remember. Yes, yes. So so you may be tempted at that point in time uh, to let your, your child take out a loan to buy a car. But I just want to caution you severely here. I want to caution you that this can backfire very quickly. Uh, most teenagers don't have the self-awareness to hold down a job all throughout high school and college to make the payments. And usually if you buy it for them, let's say you buy it for them in 10th grade or 11th grade, maybe it's 12th grade, depending on the age. Well, you're going to at a minimum get a three-year loan, but it'll probably be a four-year loan on this vehicle. And now they're having to make those payments all through high school and part of the way through college, mm -hmm. and the odds of them being able to hold down a job for three or four straight years to make payments on their vehicle, that's really difficult. Especially if they have a pretty big load in their in their education, yes. in their college. That, yes. that could be really tough for them. And I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't encourage your kids to work while they're in school and in college as well, but, but that takes a pretty heavy level of maturity for somebody who's a sophomore in high school or a junior in high school to take a job and, and hold some kind of income for four straight years. And, uh, you know, uh, that $200 car payment, let's say, and that's, that's a pretty, you know, low car payment. Let's say it's $200 a month, but they also have to pay for $100 a month of insurance mm -hmm. and they have to buy gas. That's easily $50 a month. Way more than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, there's oil changes and then they have to get new tires every couple of years and then annual inspections and uh, basic maintenance and repairs is probably another $50 a month. So 200 plus 100 plus 250s, that's $400 a month mm -hmm. that your teenage child is going to have to earn in order to keep this vehicle going. And I think a lot of times parents look at the, oh, it's only 200 bucks. They'll be able to cover it. But as soon as the child can't make that payment, guess who had to co-sign? Because the child didn't have credit. That's right. <laughs> Mom and dad had to co-sign. And so co-signing, it basically means that this person that the bank is lending to, the bank knows they're not going to pay it. The bank knows that. Statistically, the bank has done tons and tons of transactions and realized this person is not going to make their payments. So if you're co-signing, it means that you are basically signing up to make that payment. Mm -hmm. And you just need to be aware of that and realize that um, you could be in a tough spot. And I say this from personal experience. Uh, I had to buy my first car. Um, and I say I had to. Um, you know, my parents uh, gave me the opportunity to purchase a car. Uh, they helped me buy a used vehicle for only $8,000. 
but I had to take out a loan. And I think I was 16 years old because I think that was the age that you could drive um, back in the day. And uh, $8,000, it, it turned out to be, you know, about 200 bucks a month. And with the air insurance and the gas and everything else, a few years into that process, uh, when I was in college, I was having to go back to mom and dad and say, hey, will you take care of the insurance this month? Will you take care of the insurance this month? And I think that they got me a three-year note on that vehicle, but I stretched it out five years. They had to call the bank back and say, hey, can you lower the payment? Can you lower the payment? Can you stretch it out? And so it took me five years to pay off what should have been a three-year vehicle because it's only eight grand. I mean, that thing should have been knocked out quick. So uh, I just want to tell you from personal experience, I've been there and it's unwise to enable your children to go into debt for a vehicle. I'd much rather have you find something that maybe you work on together on Saturdays and you buy like a $2,000 vehicle with cash that you scratch together and maybe you, you work on it together and build it back up. Uh, so that's a few really good thoughts there on digging into a vehicle. Yeah, that, that, that's great, David. I appreciate the detail and the personal story. I think it does speak to our to our listeners to the fact that uh, there's no right or wrong here. What we're trying to do is give you some guidelines. And we, we've we been in those situations. You've probably been, been in those situations yourself. Maybe you've had children that are right at that age where you're contemplating buying the car. And what we want to caution you is just use as many of these teachable moments and help them to make a good financial decision. Do you want to raise up uh, your children to be able to support themselves, to care for themselves and their families in the future. And so take those opportunities. Take the opportunity to teach them something that will be valuable for the rest of their lives because they're going to make this decision over and over and over again. So if you equip them how to make the right decision now, especially in items like buying a car, uh, it's really, really going to serve them really well in the future. Yep. Well, uh, we want to thank you for joining us for this episode. And if you enjoyed it, please just open up your app, rate the episode, uh, review the podcast and hit the subscribe button. That lets us know that we have more people joining, more people listening, because we can see the number of downloads that come in. Uh, you can see us on iTunes or Google Play. If you happen to be listening on the website, check it out on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, go onto the CastBox app on your Android and you can just download it and listen to it from your phone. Uh, you can also share this. Uh, I have on many occasions found an episode of a podcast that I love and hit the share button and I'll text it to a friend uh, or I'll email it to a coworker. I've done that several times. So I would recommend that you would share this, just hit the share button and say, Hey, I think this might really help this person going through this type of scenario. Maybe they're about to buy a car for their child and they need to have just a little bit more wisdom and insight. Uh, we'd love to have you be a part of the personal finance conversation. So shoot us an email, uh, leave us some comments, let us know what you're thinking. And of course, you can find the show notes to this episode and more content and resources at leosabo.com. And so guess what? We look forward to having you join us next time so that together we, we can, can keep getting, getting money right. money has to come from somewhere. It's either going to come from savings or maybe you doing extra work and in some unfortunate cases you're going to borrow. But we really need to deal with the root cause so it doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm.